Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. This podcast is sponsored by Amazon. Through innovation, investment, and job creation, Amazon is helping transform the economic potential of communities across America. Amazon also invents services and tools for small and medium-sized businesses. There are more than 1.9 million businesses in the U.S. alone using Amazon products and services to follow their dreams and reach customers. Hello, Nerdcasters. This is your host, Scott Bland. Coming up this week, we're going to take a deep dive with one of our reporters into how Elizabeth Warren became Elizabeth Warren, and also how she made a lot of enemies in the Obama administration along the way. But first, of course, we are going to talk about the presidential debate Thursday night in Houston. Ten candidates met the Democratic National Committee's requirements to make the stage. Our Democratic primary debate starts right now. And we are going to pick apart a key moment of the debate with Politico's national political reporter, Elena Schneider. Hi, Elena. Hey, Scott. All right. So let's get right into it. Here's the moment that really stuck out at us from the Thursday debate. It came near the end of a very long opening act of the debate about health care and the different candidates digging into all sorts of uh, nuances and big philosophical differences alike about their health care plan. So we've got Julian Castro, the former uh, Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, really mixing it up with former Vice President Joe Biden here. They went back and forth over some of the finer points of how to offer Medicare to Americans who want it, but also really about something else. And and you can hear it in the clip. You can, well, you can hear the clip for yourself, and then we'll go into it. The clip runs about two minutes. We're going to let the whole thing play out, and then we're going to walk back so through it. It was true. Uh, you know, I grew up with a grandmother who had type 2 diabetes, and I watched her condition get worse and worse. Uh, but that whole time, she had Medicare. Uh, I want every single American family to have a strong Medicare plan available. If they choose to hold on to strong, solid private health insurance, I believe they should be able to do that. But the difference between what I support and what you support, Vice President Biden, is that you require them to opt in. And I would not require them to opt in. They would automatically be enrolled. They wouldn't have to buy in. That's a big difference because Barack Obama's vision was not to leave 10 million people uncovered. He wanted every single person in this country covered. My plan would do that. Your plan would not. They do not have to buy in. They do not have to buy in. You just said that. You just said that two minutes ago. You just said two minutes ago that they would have to buy in. You said they would have to buy in. to buy in. If she qualifies for Are you forgetting what you said two minutes ago? Are you forgetting already what you said just two minutes ago? I mean, I can't believe that you said two minutes ago that they had to buy in, and now you're saying they don't have to buy You're forgetting that. I said anyone I mean, like look, your grandmother who look, has no money, she a would, healthcare system you're automatically, automatically enrolls people regardless of whether they choose to opt in or not. If you lose your job, for instance, his, his health care plan would not automatically enroll you. You would have to opt in. My health care plan would. That's a big difference. I'm fulfilling, fulfilling the legacy of Barack Obama, and you're not. I'll be surprised to him. Andrew Yang. 
This is why come presidential on, debates on. are becoming unwatchable. Yeah. Yeah, where, this where reminds everybody of what they cannot can I, stand about Washington. Scoring I, points against each other, can poking I, at each other, and telling each other that, that you're my plan, your plan. Look, we all yeah, That's called a Democratic primary election. That's called an election. That's an election. You know, this is what we're here for. It's an election. Yeah, but a house, a house divided cannot stand. And that is not how we're Look, gonna everyone, we know we're on the same team here. We know we're on the same team. We all have a better... All right, a lot, a lot to unpack here. So so first up, Elena, the, the entry point to this whole thing is about 45 minutes, really, at the beginning of the debate of discussion about this big philosophical difference kind of breaking up the Democratic primary field. It's about whether to... Uh, make incremental changes to Obamacare and the healthcare system or uh, to go for a big a big change in in Medicare for all uh and the the pros and cons of all those things and then also a lot of really nuanced differences in just like how to implement those those different things and how long it would take and so on and so forth Right. So healthcare kicked off this presidential debate in part because the two main options for the health path forward on healthcare sat at center stage. Joe Biden, who believes that Democrats should build on Obamacare, extend a public option versus people like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, who believe in eliminating the private healthcare industry and fully implementing a government run system through Medicare for all. Those are two diametrically opposed options for how to approach this healthcare system. And then, of course, we've got a number of people who sort of are smattered in between those two ends of the spectrum. We've got um, Pete Buttigieg, who has a Medicare for all who want it plan. You've got uh, Better O'Rourke's uh, Medicare for America plan. Kamala Harris also has a plan of her own, sort of all giving variations on somewhere between, you know, building on Obamacare, giving a public option and sort of saying, you know, we're going to let the, the market sort of help decide whether or not this country is going to fully move over to Medicare for all. Look, again, it's very complicated. There are a lot of options that were being floated. And in all of that sort of broader philosophical policy discussion, there was this cutting, slicing moment that Castro delivered against Joe Biden. Yeah. And then there's there's folks like Castro who are kind of like Medicare for all adjacent, right, who he hasn't really latched himself onto a particular plan, but he, he wants uh, Medicare or something something like it to be available to everyone. And you can hear that in the story he's telling about how it was available for his grandmother. Uh, you know, I grew up with a grandmother who had type 2 diabetes and I watched her condition get worse and worse. Uh, but that whole time she had Medicare. But then uh, he's, he's still going for the contrast here in, in Vice President Biden who has kind of a similar sounding policy. And then all of a sudden the moment is not about Medicare for all and the nuances of healthcare system, uh, the healthcare system. Julian Castro takes the moment somewhere very different. Are you, are you forgetting what you said two minutes ago? Are you forgetting already what you said just two minutes ago? That was a pretty remarkable ago? moment. And in fact, there were, there were definitely gasps in the newsroom as, as Castro started to really drill into Joe Biden there. And well, there I, were gasps in the audience. I mean, I can't believe. You can exactly. It, right? Yeah. And I think that that, you know, look, it's it's. It's a really, really difficult line to walk of sort of pointing out the elephant in the room, which there are the three leaders on this debate stage in terms of national polling are all in their 70s. And certainly a concern that has been brought up time and time again with with Joe Biden is his sort of gaps in memory. Joe Biden has gotten into a lot of trouble lately by mixing up really important details about troops who have been honored about their services that they've done in war. And and look, he, he has said 
said and sort of defense of that, well, the details don't matter as long as sort of the broad uh, conversation is accurate. And I think that people like Castro would get on stage and say, actually, the details really do matter. And he was trying to make that point by 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 going after implicitly and explicitly uh, Biden's age and really pointing out the fact that what he thought was um, was sort of him misremembering what he had just said on stage two minutes ago. But of course, as we went back into the transcript and actually reread what the vice president said, Castro actually didn't get it quite right. And in fact, Biden did say... He said anyone who can't afford it gets automatically enrolled into the Medicare type option we had. That's the quote from Biden. Anyone who can't afford it gets automatically enrolled in, a, in, in, in the Medicare type option we had. Now, Biden had also said at a different point that you, you, know, you can automatically buy into this, which implies, I think, what, what Castro was criticizing is that it's not automatic, right? Automatic eligibility versus automatic action. And there's also... But now we're getting into a very, very nuanced difference of... Of policy, like the type of this thing is that, deep in the weeds. This is deep in the weeds. This is what like Congress deals with. You know, it'll go to the Senate and the Health Committee, and like this, this gets. This is not something that's going to like become the way things are just because of the way it is on the trail. My plan would do that. Your plan would they not. They do not have to buy. Castro came was was like coming ready to rumble, right? Because then. Uh, you know, Pete Buttigieg tries to sidle in and be like, whoa, everyone. Yeah. Yeah, we're, this we're reminds everybody of what they cannot I, stand about Washington. Scoring I, points against each other. And, and, and each Castro kind of knocks him in the mouth, too. You're my plan. Your plan. Look, we all yeah, That's called a Democratic primary election. That's called an election. That's an election. You know, this is what we're here for. It's an election. And then we got Amy Klobuchar diving into the fray, repping her uh, fellow Midwestern candidate, albeit from like 150 years ago, Abe Lincoln. A house divided cannot stand. Yeah, politicians come in with, with canned lines, but this one was uh, was particularly difficult to, to take. And that is not how we're Look, gonna win everyone, this. we know we're on the same team. Well, not here. only that, I did not expect team. or did not have Andrew Yang settling a peace deal among the Democrats on my bingo card, but we got that tonight. We know we're on the same team here. We know we're on the same team. We all have I mean, I didn't have Julian Castro saying, like, I'm paraphrasing here, but basically shut up, nerd, to, to Pete Buttigieg as he tried or, to come in and play like, peacemaker. Or, like, sit down, old man. You don't know what you're talking about. I right. mean, all those moments happened in the span of very few minutes. And I think that it's sort of, again, it's it's emblematic of, of what all of these candidates need to try and do. Castro's trying to make a moment for himself, pointing out a, a real uh, concern, weakness in the frontrunner to build up his own operation, to build his own profile, while somebody like Pete Buttigieg is trying to come in here and sort of present himself as the person who rises above. But it's sort of, again, it's it's really getting at so many different tensions that have been sort of percolating under the surface of this Democratic primary that sort of burst into the light in just a few minutes on this primary stage. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, really quickly here at the end, Elena, I mean, you've written uh, several times over the past few weeks about the different ways in which some of the lower polling candidates are just starting to feel the pressure right now. I mean, some of them are feeling the pressure in having been completely left out of tonight's festivities, right? The uh, the, the folks who didn't qualify for the debate stage. But there's still also among the folks who were there, like Castro, who have been stuck polling around 1, 2, 3 percent for a very long time now. And the Iowa caucuses are starting to loom Right. The, the fall is here. We've passed Labor Day. We can't wear white anymore. Like this is now. Oh, we can wear white. 
<laughs> I'm wearing white pants right now. No, this is this is the moment where these candidates, particularly those who have sort of languished in the low to mid single digits, have to start showing up in a way that's much more aggressive. Sometimes it turns into a murder suicide mission where they try and take out a top polling candidate and in fact end up sort of killing themselves in the process because they can't, you know, they're seen as mean or too tough or whatever it might be that that voters are sort of turned off more broadly on them. But also it can turn into a good moment for them. All right. We'll leave it there. Elena, thank you so much for breaking down that moment. Thanks for having me. Coming up, we're going to talk a little bit about the origins of Elizabeth Warren's populism and political career. Uh, But first, we're going to listen to a little highlight reel here of the best, worst, and clearly most prepared in front of a bathroom mirror jokes from that Thursday night presidential debate. Play the radio. Make sure the television, the, excuse me, make sure you have the record player on at night. The, the, the phone, make sure the kids hear words. He reminds me of that, that guy in The Wizard of Oz. You know, when you pull back the curtain, it's a really small dude. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even going to take the bait, Senator Harris, but I am going to take well, this I'm to Senator Harris. wasn't about you. <laughs> Now, look, I'm the only person on the stage that finds Trudeau's hair very menacing, but they are not a national security threat. I am Asian, so I know a lot of doctors. Houston, we have a problem. Should more Americans, including those here in Texas and and in Iowa, follow your diet? (laughs) Um, You know, first of all, I want to say no. Actually, I want to translate that into Spanish. No. Um, (laughs) Hey, Joe. Instead of saying, no, we can't, let's say, yes, we can. (laughs) All right. I hope you all enjoyed those as much as I did uh, as an expert teller of dad jokes. We're going to get right into our second segment. But first, a quick break. This podcast is sponsored by Amazon. You might not know Amazon supports more than 1.9 million businesses, content creators and developers in the U.S., That includes everything from helping an entrepreneur in Florida start a company delivering packages to Amazon customers, to giving an artist in Texas the tools and services needed to sell handmade products through Amazon stores worldwide. In Maine, a small nonprofit leveraged cloud services to quickly launch and serve their community. And in California, a classroom is building an Alexa skill to assist students with their learning through the school year. Amazon, helping small and medium-sized businesses, nonprofits, and even classrooms succeed in the digital economy. All right. For our next segment this week, we are going to talk to Politico's national political reporter, Alex Thompson, about his latest piece on Elizabeth Warren and a a key piece of her kind of proto-political career that arguably launched her toward where she is right now, running for president. Alex, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. So, Alex, in a nutshell, this piece is about it's about Elizabeth Warren's time uh, in and around the Obama administration and the the fights that that she had with uh, with senior administration officials, even a little bit with Barack Obama himself, about uh, the the direction of the administration's financial regulation. So the financial crisis in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, two thousand ten. The Dow tumbled more than 500 points after two pillars of the street tumbled over the weekend. We are in the midst of a serious financial crisis. The National Association of Realtors reported the worst month-to-month drop in existing home sales since they started keeping track in the late 90s. And in the, the financial crisis is the moment Elizabeth Warren goes from Harvard professor teaching a class on bankruptcy 
to a you know, nail them up populist politician. I think I alternate between furious and astounded. I really, I, I am stunned by this. She becomes a progressive star. Elizabeth Warren, good to see you back on the show, Elizabeth. Elizabeth Warren. Welcome, Elizabeth. Uh, appreciate you joining us. Elizabeth Warren. Essentially, she goes from this mostly powerless oversight panel looking over the, bail, the bank bailout, and that she makes into this bully pulpit of populist rage. She then takes that and uses that new public profile to push for this consumer agency for financial products. And eventually, with that profile, she turns it into a run for Senate, into Ted Kennedy's seat. And then from that Senate seat is the platform from which she's running for president. I am a candidate for president of the United States of America. And that's how you end up in Iowa in a Winnebago with Elizabeth Warren that has a bumper sticker on the back that says, honk if you're ready for big structural change. Oh, to be clear, it was not a bumper sticker. They wrapped the entire Winnebago <laughs> so that at the very back, in huge letters, it says, honk, honk if you want big structural change. So t- tell us a little bit about, about the, that, that experience of this, this on-the-bus uh, interview. <laughs> so I'm really interested in this period of your life between 2009 and 2011. Okay. So we're sitting, we're sitting across from each other. We have about like 35 minutes or so. It was a moment. And we're, she's right in the middle of this very complicated answer. And then, you know, one person honks. All of a sudden she yelps and she's like, we got him! We got him! They honked! Big structural change! Yes! And... Um, and she was she was so pleased that people were honking for uh, big structural change. You're starting the story basically saying that that in the middle of 2010, you know the the uh, the midterm elections are bearing down. You know, healthcare reform is. Uh, uh, is kind of working its way through. It's becoming like the big political issue of of that election. Uh, there's there's climate change legislation. There's the the economy kind of still struggling, and Barack Obama's mind space is full of Elizabeth Warren. That's right, and to the point that Rahm Emanuel gets so frustrated that he emails a bunch of top administration officials, just exasperated, and says, "We are spending a lot of time on one person." And why is that? And it's because Elizabeth Warren, for the last, the previous 20 months, had really, really just grilled them on their, on, on their financial recovery and everything about how they were staffing up the administration to the fact they weren't helping out ordinary people enough. And so what happens is that she gets, uh, she helps put the CFPB, the Consumer, Consumer Financial Protection uh, Bureau, into the Dodd-Frank legislation. So right before this is about to pass, so this is like June 2010, she goes to David Axelrod and she is very clear. She's like, you nominate me to head the agency or I can continue looking over Tim Geithner's shoulder the next 10 months. And David Axelrod told me he's like it was, it was very much in the he, he referenced the clip, the, the quip by Lyndon Johnson, which is it's better to have them inside the tent pissing out than outside the tent pissing in and. At this point, Obama wanted to bring her inside the tent, but a lot of his economic team not just disliked her, but hated her. I mean, there, there's like a fundamental clash of worldviews right there, and 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 also sometimes in personalities, right? When when you get to uh, Warren and then uh, T- Tim Geithner, the Treasury Secretary, right? I mean, there's there's a lot of stuff going on there. Not only do they disagree 
just in policy, but personally, their backgrounds are so incredibly different. And that's like you couldn't pick two people coming from different perspectives. Tim Geithner had been ensconced in the economic establishment of his time, and he very much channeled Alan Greenspan in sort of using jargony, non-newsmaking, sort of impenetrable language. But also like high-level language is what we're talking about. This is someone who – and there's a line in your story. I can't remember who the quote was from, but it was basically saying that like – it was like Warren – or it was like Geithner was looking at things from atop a mountain and Warren was down in the desert. That's and, actually and Warren's quote. That's Warren's she, quote. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She, she wrote it in her book about when they're talking about the foreclosure crisis, they go into this meeting in the Treasury building and it's a bunch of the people that are overseeing TARP, the bank bailout, and it's a bunch of people and it's a bunch of the Treasury officials. And Warren interrupts him and was like, what are you doing? for, you know, to help homeowners. And she basically comes to the conclusion and people um, around her say that they came to the conclusion that they just weren't really paying attention and they weren't really focused on homeowners. They thought if you save the financial system, the housing stuff will trail, like Mm -hmm. uh, in the same way that unemployment will. That the key was saving the financial institutions and the financial system and then the rest would follow. And she just thought that there was a lack of urgency um, when it came to helping ordinary people as opposed to helping the the big banks. And this led to some, I mean, remarkably uh, frank, I, I would say, uh, back and forths and questioning, grilling, uh, while Warren was on the, the Senate panel kind of overseeing TARP and, and Geithner would come in to uh, to, to testify before the before this uh, group in the Senate. Well, in order to understand why she went at Geithner in particular so hard and other Treasury officials so hard, you have to understand that she had her first time in Washington had been lobbying on this bankruptcy bill that eventually passes in 2005. Essentially, um, after all of her lobbying, after all of her work, Congress ignored all of her decisions. And they passed a bankruptcy bill that was more pro-industry. So when Harry Reid selects her in 2008 to head this oversight panel on TARP, she comes into Washington with a head full of steam. You know, she had been so frustrated with that first experience, so angry by it, that she comes in just not willing or not willing, but, uh, you know, not trying to make friends. And so she goes at Geithner hard from the very beginning you know, you set aside $50 billion and what do you have to show for it? She insinuated that they were more interested in helping the big banks than helping homeowners. She suggested that they uh, were treating AIG differently than um, uh, than they were the car companies. Essentially, she was really impugning uh, their motives time after time after time. And things, you know, would get would get pretty tense. And even at one point, you know, she sometimes would set up questions that you knew just from almost from like sort of the smirk that she'd get on her face that he didn't know the answer to or, you know, where'd all the money go? Do you know where the money went? Uh, the, absolutely. And the money that um, and of course, happy to provide any. any and, any you know, the Treasury Department had in injected uh, capital so that the companies could spend it however they wanted. So, of course, they didn't know where it was and they hadn't earmarked it and they hadn't put a lot of strings on it. So it uh, it was a question that she knew he didn't have the answer to, but it, it was a, a means of trying to uh, push him. 
was Treasury aware of who the counterparties were? I mean, you know, Tim Geithner dismissed these in his book as made for YouTube inquisitions. And I think a fundamental misunderstanding between the two sides is that Warren was making these for YouTube. She was making them in a way that would become viral, that would be watched, that could be understood by as many people as possible. Um, and that frustrate a lot of people. And it also gets to the difference of perspective, right? For, for From Tim Geithner's perspective, made for YouTube means it doesn't matter. Yes. But as we've learned, that kind of thing matters a lot. My guest tonight, a professor of law at Harvard University Safety School. And Alex, she's becoming well-known enough through uh, her reports on, on these things, through her, her appearances, her attempts to, to uh, bring all this stuff that the oversight panel is working on, that, that she lands an appearance on The Daily Show at one point. And that just kind of catapults her even further into the, the progressive consciousness. Please welcome to the show, Elizabeth Warren. Yeah, the hunger for people that could talk in layman's terms about the financial crisis was so great that she actually gets this in April 2009. So she's only been on the panel a a few months. That's how quickly she had risen. And there's like a point of no return for her national profile. It is this Daily Show interview. And eventually at the very, very end, she sort of articulates her theory of the case. And the big decision we're going to make is it's going to go one way or the other. We're going to decide basically, hey, we don't need regulation. You know, it's fine. Boom and bust, boom and bust, boom and bust. And good luck with your 401k. Or alternatively, we're going to say, you know, we're going to put in some smart regulation. It's going to adapt to the fact that we have new products. And what we're going to have going forward is we're going to have some stability and some real prosperity for ordinary folks. And And John Stewart says, I don't know what you just did there, but it's the first time I felt great. By the way... That is the first time in probably six months to a year that I felt better. Something, I don't know what it is that you just did right there, but for a second. He called it, you know, financial financial chicken chicken soup soup for me. That was, thank you. That actually put things in a perspective that made a little bit of sense. And I really do appreciate that. And, um, you know, that was the moment. And then she goes on to be on the show several times, but that was really the moment where she reached escape velocity in terms of becoming a national political figure. Either we fix this problem going forward, or the game really is over. When you say it like that, when you look at me like that, I know your husband's backstage, I still want to make out with you. (laughs) (laughs) And that that gets to, I think that takes us to today a little bit, right? It's like, this is, one of the big lessons from the story is that Warren developed, developed a feel, but also just seems to have had it innately about how to create leverage in the political system where where there seemed to be none, right? And in this case, it was through public pressure. It was through this, uh, you know, her first uh, – she had been on TV before. You know, she had written books. But th- this was the first time she was really holding up a megaphone and trying to rally this kind of populist feeling that, that we see coursing through both parties today. Yeah, I mean, she's – I think it was underappreciated – by the Treasury Department at the time, you know, she came into the the Congressional Oversight Panel very deliberately thinking, I'm going to be loud because I have no other real power. And so the monthly, you know, this monthly report that honestly would have almost certainly been ignored became a monthly media tour. And, you know, she would start up at, you know, before dawn and Aid would bring her and uh, Egg McMuffin 
um, but never coffee because she doesn't drink coffee. Elizabeth Warren, she's the chair and a constant guest on our show. We always appreciate it of the TARP Oversight Committee. Elizabeth, we look forward to a day where we won't need you, but we need you now. Tell me about uh, the HAMP program, the second attempt to help out homeowners who are uh, underwater. Well, let's start with Congress. Remember, a year and a half ago when this... And um, and then she would just start out and she would go on everything from Fox and Friends to NPR to New York Times to every single thing in between. And so, you know, from the Obama administration's perspective, here's this you know, progressive Democrat going on Fox and Friends to bash us. I'm always glad to be here. Uh, first off, what is your... And so they felt offensive. But at the same time, Warren's perspective was... I am creating leverage to get my priorities, not just in the financial rescue, but then eventually to get my priorities into Dodd-Frank. And then to she eventually staffs up the CFPB, so in order to help her staff up the CFPB, and then eventually to become a senator. So her, her thinking about power, the way that you use the bully pulpit, I think because she had come from a place without little power, was rather sophisticated and often was at the expense of the Obama administration. Kind of helps explain how we got to where we are now. Mm -hmm. And so now, Alex, at some point, Warren is bugging a lot of different people in the administration in a lot of different ways. Uh, She's making requests for this. She's speaking out about about that. And, you know, if you can kind of take us through just the the litany of those. But then also they at, at some point they figure out the you know, the the best way to maybe de- deflect this away from them and into a different pursuit. Yeah, essentially, the, the problem is they want to bring Warren inside the tent, but they don't want to give her what she wants, which is to nominate her to lead the CFPB. So they, they after they originally, they have advisors suggest that she be a quote unquote cheerleader, to which she told me it was incredibly insulting. It was insulting. And I wasn't going to do it. Um, and then they're like, you could be a public spokesman. She's like, no. You can be a special advisor. No. And then they come up with this this fix that's temporary of like, you can help, you can basically set up the agent agency and then be a special advisor to Obama. And then that was sort of the, you know, the scotch tape that held it together for about 10 months. So she leads the agency. Um, eventually, someone in the White House figures out a more permanent fix, which is we don't have to nominate her and then we can just push her to run for the Senate in Massachusetts. Now, this is Ted Kennedy's seat that Scott Brown had won. Republican Scott Brown had won an upset. Um, And so there was this was a very elegant solution to both problems. Um, The only thing you had to do, though, is convince Elizabeth Warren to run for Senate. And Valerie Jarrett told me that she drew the short straw and having to bring it to her and uh, described Warren as not enthusiastic at all at the prospect. And Axelrod told me that, you know, Elizabeth is a cautious person and didn't want to set herself up to fail and had never run for electoral office. Plus, you know, the CFPB had been her baby, had been her agency, had been her idea. And so she really wanted to be nominated to lead it. But eventually um, they they go down the other, this other path. And despite the odds, you elected the first woman senator to the state of Massachusetts. And now we're here. Now, the, the second kind of big thing in terms of 
the the reason all this this backstory is so important right now is that there are still hard. I mean, you lay out there are still hard feelings among. Oh, very much so. A, a great number of people. I mean, a lot a lot of people in the Obama administration basically feel that she became a political star and is now being able to run for president because she bashed them Mm -hmm. over and over and over repeatedly. And sort of the theme that comes up is they felt that she basically cast herself as the star in a morality play and cast them as the villains, even while they say, listen, there were more people doing oversight than there were enacting the bailouts, and we are trying to save the world from disaster. And Warren's team is... You guys thought you guys were the smartest people in the room and you and you were defensive about anyone that came in and second-guessed, even though there was very little oversight and transparency into what you were doing. And you guys um, engaged in sort of obscene self-congratulations and took victory laps, you know, way prematurely. And I think Warren herself, I mean, she indicates this, is that um, – you know, Warren sort of sees the way the financial rescue was done as one of the reasons why an outsider and a populist um, like Donald Trump was able to even get close to the Oval Office. So while, um, you know, while, you know, people like Joe Biden on the trail often boast about saving the economy from Great Depression, Tim Geithner does. Tim Geithner, Hank Paulson, and Ben Bernanke just co-wrote a book talking about all the things they learned from, you know, helping save the economy from a financial crisis. You know, they see that. Warren looks back at the financial crisis, and she sees evidence of how rigged the system is. It's just they saw the world differently. They had spent all their time with giant banks. And their representatives. This is my point about how Washington works. Who comes into the office of the Secretary of Treasury? Who comes in to the Federal Reserve Bank to plead their case? Who's on the phone with the top economic advisors? It's not the poor guy down the street. And that's that's how the system is rigged. And it's just a completely fundamental different worldview, even though they both come from the left. Now, there's one other uh, kind of big, big thing that I thought was interesting that that you brought in at the end of the story, which is that eventually as Warren gets going, she gets the special advisor post at the Treasury Department to kind of set up the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. People seem to think that she took a more pragmatic approach once she was inside about how to how to move those levers of power, that it wasn't all just being loud, that it was – there was a lot more nuance to it once she was inside. And, now there, and there's some people who say that it's a little hypocritical and there's others who say that she – like th- this is just her understanding and adapting to – the you know the, the the leverage points of the positions that she's in, and I mean you know maybe it says something about how she would be president if she gets elected. I mean, this is sort of a fascinating dividing po- line among a lot of the dozens of administration and treasury officials I I talked to. You know, I could not find one. Maybe there are some out there, but I couldn't find one that was critical of her during uh, her work setting up the CFPB. Now, some are still skeptical that this is only a ten month. Uh, Axelrod told me that this is only a 10-month sample size. We don't really know. But Axelrod said it indicated that 
when she's actually in the room, in the room of power, that she actually acted a lot more pragmatically. You know, she brought in people from Morgan Stanley and from Capital One. Um, you know, she brought people from the private sector. She brought people from the Treasury Department that she'd been critical of. And, um, you know, a lot of people in the Treasury Department felt that this validated their own pragmatism. At the same time, a lot of people were frustrated, as you said, like that she's a hypocrite, that she bashes us out loud with righteous indignation and she comes in and she's not actually that different. Um, One administration official who works both at the CFPB and works in the Obama administration, you know, I think had an appreciation for the nuances that this was not about her becoming, her public criticism wasn't about her becoming a star. It was about getting her priorities dressed. And so, you know, this, it does create some questions I think some Obama people are like, oh, see, she's not that different from us. Whereas I think that also underappreciates probably the extent of uh, how different the personnel would be in an Obama administration compared to a Warren administration. And that, that's that's really interesting, right? I mean, that that I think gets to like some of the, the, the stakes. It's not just the policy plans, right? It's like the fundamentally different view of the type of people who should be staffing an administration and the, the thousands and thousands of regulatory uh, jobs that, that go into it. Um, I think that's I think that's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, one of Warren's maxims is personnel is policy. And, um, you know, even during the run up to the 2016 primary, you know, uh, this uh, didn't make it into the piece, but the WikiLeaks emails show that Warren sent a list of people that she felt were good personnel that were not of the so-called Bob Rubin school of economic advisors that she felt would be better than for, for the the Clinton for for a future for a Clinton, Clinton administration, administration. Mm-hmm. exactly. And then you know, her aides met with uh, with with Clinton's aides and sort of hashed that out. And you know, the point being that Warren sees a a different school of intellectuals and policymakers that should be elevated um, than the more economic establishment figures that Obama really installed. In her book, you know, she talks about how Obama basically just continued the economic policies of the W. Bush administration when it came to the financial rescue in particular. All right. Alex, it's a fascinating story. Thank you so much for for joining us to talk through it. Thanks for having me. And as always, a big thank you to our listeners for tuning in this week. Our producer for this episode is Annie Reese. Dave Shaw is our executive producer. Our illustrator is Bill Cookman. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please do us a favor and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. Once again, thanks so much for tuning in. We'll talk to you again next week.